Well, welcome everyone. Good evening. Welcome to this event uh, from the Institute for Artificial Intelligence and Data Science at the University of Exeter. Tonight's discussion has been created with Agile Rabbit. So we're talking about the future of artificial intelligence this evening. And I think for lots of people, when you say that phrase, it tends to conjure up sort of robots, people are taking away our jobs sort of anxiety really. And I always think about that quote from Hal in, in Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, Hal says uh, with sort of chilling calmness, the 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. We are all foolproof and incapable of error. Yeah, right. So I think that is the sort of the popular imagination runs away with itself when it comes to AI, all a bit dystopian. But tonight, I hope we're going to sort of cut through some of that crap, for want of a better word, and look at the sort of tangible and realistic impacts of AI. Not just ones in the future, but actually what's already been happening, is happening, is, you know, part of our daily lives without us even realising it. And lots and lots to talk about and some, a fantastic panel, a, a veritable brains trust we have today. Let me introduce them. So, Shaltana Began is head of RegTech and Data Innovation at the Bank of England, as well as being a bit of an Exeter alumni. You've drunk in the bars already or been <laughs> staggered <laughs> out on... on all of uh, yes, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Peter Chaloner is Professor in Mathematics and member of the Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Exeter. Welcome. Noor Shaker is CEO of Glamorous AI. She's a serial biotech entrepreneur with a track record of achievements in AI, having held an assistant professorship from Aalborg University. Welcome, welcome. And Tim Dodwell is Professor in Computational Mathematics, also at the Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence here at the University of Exeter. So, lots to talk about, lots of knowledge on this panel. You all know far more than I do, and I look forward to you disagreeing with one another. Um, let's see how we go. I'm going to begin by asking you all the same question and interested to hear your thoughts. So, Tim, if I begin with you, can you give me an example of something that AI is really good at and something perhaps it's, it's not so good at, that it's bad at? Okay, so I think... Uh, examples that stand out uh, that have been game-changing is uh, sort of image recognition. I think certainly in the medical field, um, the ability to diagnose things from uh, data about images in the medical field leading to diagnosis. Um, there's a particular methods called convolutional neural nets, which have been fundamental and game-changing in, in being able to do those very accurately and often now better than experts. That means these methods can be harnessed around the world, which is, is really game-changing and very positive. Something that probably AI doesn't do particularly well or is a future challenge, I would say, um, is safe, explainable AI. So often a lot of the methods are around a very black box. So you have inputs, there are outputs, and they learn the connection between inputs and outputs. But how that decision is made, the, the logic or reasoning behind it is often not clear. And if we're thinking about safety critical systems and you're looking to insure them or look at liability, if you can't understand the reasoning of these methods, then it's difficult to, to, to partition blame or responsibility. And um, so that's, that's an exciting area, an opportunity, but I don't think it's well done yet. No, but a good example and a, and a bad example, perhaps. I think AI is good at augmenting human abilities. We, we are biased in so many ways. Uh, we are inaccurate in so many ways. And I think AI can be precise and unbiased in a very, very good way. 
Um, my field has been working with AI for computer games and then I moved into the AI in the drug discovery space. And I've seen AI, I've built AI that can actually help us, for instance, design better medicines mm. by just going beyond chemists' internal intrinsic biases and allowing them to think differently about how to design molecules, for instance, how to design chemistry. So that's kind of a way where AI can really reach out to areas in creativity, for instance, that we haven't really thought of, but can give us that knowledge. You know, like maybe you want to look there because there's something interested, but we human haven't seen it before, so we haven't really considered it. So that's kind of, I think, where AI will really be kind of very useful. Back to the images example, I think that's a good example of like images, text, where AI has been able to design new images, for instance, for people and like faces that haven't been designed before, like synthetic text or like poetry, even code, pieces of code that can can be written by, by AI. So really taking taking a lot of the mundane work, I think, that's mm -hmm. some of the work that we, we, we really became very, very good at, and then AI can just kind of do that piece of work for us. Where AI cannot, well, hasn't been really super good at is emotion and cognition uh, recognition. So like all AI system, pretty much kind of like sounds and it looks like robotics still for us. They like that kind of the human empathy, human ability to, to interact and communicate with us in a, in a human way. And I don't think that's kind of an area that is has been evolved as quickly as, as other areas where we have a lot of data and then we can feed it to AI and AI can, can just learn and, and generalize. So I think there, there, there will be a lot of exploration, a lot of research in that <coughs> space. Computers aren't empathetic shock, just like <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. We know set the, set the scene for the two examples I was going to give, which is here at the bank, we, you know, I use the analogy, we receive the entire works of Shakespeare every week, twice in the num you know, written prose for the, the organisations that we actually regulate. And there's no way, you know, with the, with the humans we have that we can read through everything. So how do you know if the next crisis is sitting on page 4,522 of, you know, they will inundate you with information on purpose. So I think that's where machines do really can do that. They don't get tired of reading things and they can, you know, throw out things that we might miss uh, ultimately. And so I think in risk mitigation... Uh, what doesn't it do? I think to Noah's point, the lack of emotion means when we go out to see supervisors of uh, uh, firms and we go out to say, you know, who's doing what, who's lying? You know, a CEO might be sweating profusely from his head as he tells me he's got no risk whatsoever in capital or liquidity. Now, a machine's not going to tell you that. So for me, I, you know, I totally agree with Noah on this, which is, you know, it's that augmented, you know, use people for what they do really well and use the machine to, you know, that mundanity, that non-value add where the outcome is really good. That's the kind of thing I, I think AI is really going to challenge the status quo. Definitely talk about that a bit more, I hope. Peter. So my positive one would be understanding rule-based systems. So things like games, chess and Go, which they've been spoiled by AI now. Um, but also things like protein folding, where there are rules, but the rules are really complicated and you need huge amounts of practice to understand them. And I don't think people are prepared to put that in, whereas an AI is. So you can learn what those rules are to get a protein fold that gives you the answer you want. And that's really cool. Now, the negative one, I'm going to be slightly flippant, because what we don't have is the general purpose AI of iRobot. We don't have, I don't have a robot in my house that will do the ironing and then come and play chess with me later. <laughs> and, and I don't think we're going to get that. Uh, because AI is not about 
that general purpose at the moment. I, uh, there are some people working on it, but that is not what most people are working on. They're working on images, they're working on rule-based systems, they're working on really useful things, but they're actually quite limited. Which actually brings me nicely, Tim, one more sort of definition that I wanted to get out, and Peter, you may want to add to this, which is we talk about AI and machine learning almost interchangeably, but slightly different, would you say? Yeah, I, I mean, AI to me is a broad sweep of methods uh, which, which, you know, covers mathematics, statistics, high-performance computing. Um, I would say that machine learning is a sub-part of that uh, in that field, uh, which is more focused around pat pattern recognition, uh, prediction from data. So people do use them synonymously because, you know, a huge part of AI is machine learning but it's sort of in the detail how we separate them. But do I mind if someone calls AI machine learning? No, I don't care. But does it take account, perhaps, if we talk about AI, does it take account of this lack of empathy, that the robot that isn't? Is that, is that a, a way of thinking about it? Because that, that empathy part is, is more profound than just putting data in and, and looking at the outputs. I guess a, a machine learning algorithm uh, could learn empathy, right? Uh, or, or could be trained to learn a form of empathy, what, em what, however you labelled empathy, uh, and it, it could do that. I, sort of the layer is it could it learn to be empathetic in its own way? I guess maybe that's another level of of learning, which is the more the generalised AI which people people consider. Could I could I come in there because I was thinking about this the other day that you can teach a computer to write poetry. But it's not poetry, because we don't write poetry that way. We write poetry with a purpose, and the machine has no concept of the purpose. What it writes is something that looks like poetry, but it isn't poetry, because poetry is more than that. It's more than just the words on the page. And I think, at the moment, that's that emotional, empathetic bit that the iRobot robots have. I think we have no concept of how to put that in. I mean, I write equations and code them up in computers and I put numbers in and numbers come out. And I could write something that would probably produce something that looked a bit like poetry, but it wouldn't be poetry. And I don't think AI music is music. It's because we do music for very human reasons. We do poetry for very human reasons. I think that's for the author, though. I mean, if, like, it's, it's still bad as a Turing test, right? I mean, if you give, like, an AI written piece of poetry and a poet piece of poetry and you read them and you didn't differentiate, that's still poetry, right? No, But, but we human like to add the human element wherever we, we kind of read. I don't think it is because I think part of the poetry is the reason why we write poetry. Because some people write poetry and some people don't. I don't write poetry. But that's for you as an author, but for me as a yeah. reader, as long as I can't differentiate. I don't know. That's technology. an interesting question. I think it's a really interesting philosophical question is if you can't tell but the purpose was different, yeah. is that, you know. I would be disappointed <laughs> if I knew that the poetry I really like is written by AI. But it's <laughs> well, we've, we've been going for five minutes and we've already arrived at the philosophical <laughs> limits of AI. Well, I'm going to bring it back to, to more fundamental, we, we should come back to that, but bring it back to sort of more fundamental basics, if you like. Shultana, I want to think a bit about... Um, how we think of AI in the workplace and how it perhaps affects work. You already began to talk about that, about whether taking away some of the mundane tasks is really what AI is for. How would you say it affects 
work at the Bank of England? The, the first thing, you know, when I started this whole journey, uh, I'm not a technologist by nature, and I sit along a panel of technologists, and I think I've, I fell into technology, so what is it that made me fall into it? And it's curiosity, uh, and I'll come back to why that's so important. Um, but it's that curiosity that says, okay, how do, you, how do you make this applicable? How do you become a practitioner of AI and machine learning and technology in an organisation where technology is not what's keeping people up at night? You know, they're, they're, they're up at night, you know, the next financial crisis or the impact of the economy of you know, political events on, on what we do, whether individuals can you know, go and you know, take the money out of their, their, their bank accounts because it's kept safe and sound. How do I make technology something that people talk about, something that people recognize is not the person who I call 555 if my laptop's not working. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the truth, because the way we live and operate as individuals, I probably would put 100 pound down and say every single one of you has a, has a smartphone in your pocket or in your bag or in your persons. Um, we've changed the way we live and use technology. So it's not something that sits on the side. And it's exactly the same for the bank, which is, the first story I told is, we're 327 years old, maybe 328 this year. So we can change, and we have changed, and we've embraced change. So if we take away the fact that this is something that is you know, synonymous with robots and unexplainability, it's change. People are changing the way they operate. We are regulating in an environment that is changing, and therefore we need to change. And so we've started that journey. And yes, it started with, what do machines do better, that kind of non-sexy end of machine learning or AI as I call it because you can't jump before you can actually you know run and there's also you know to bring it to the skills point which is you have to meet people where they're at so we call it digital intelligence you know all of us here have a level of digital intelligence wherever that is um, and we need to make sure that when we're including technology and we're including these new and advanced techniques that we're meeting people where they're at um, within the organ and when they're not we're having to open up and say, actually, we as an organization need to reskill. We need to retrain. Where do we want to be? You know, what does a supervisor look like today? And where does it look like in the future? And I guess that's where our work is. So yes, we're using artificial intelligence search engines. We're doing things like text analytics, sentiment analysis, all that type of thing. Um, a good example, uh, Twitter. Um, how many of you write a letter to complain about anything anymore? You don't. You go on Twitter, you go on Facebook, you go on your emails and you tap away and you say, because it's really easy now, you're in a restaurant and you know, it's 50 minutes slow, you write it there and there. And it's that instantaneous. So one of the things we've done at the bank is we've started using Twitter as an information source. But you know, it's that, you know, oh, is, what's the quality? How is, you know, is it misinformation? Is it real information? So we start to use it as what we call a challenger model. You know, do your traditional methods of finding things out and we'll use these types of machines to use as challenger models. And when it does work better and it does work faster, well, the burden shifts to the organisation to say, why wouldn't you use it? And so it's that kind of, I think, trial and error and being innovative in you know, increasing your risk appetite that we've started to do at the bank. And it's having a real effect. And not waiting for perfection. You know, when something works, use it and learn from it and make it better. One other quick thing I want you to drop in... Bank of England runs innovate an innovation competition for internships. What what does that involve, and and how is that building into this idea? Yes, yeah, so, so that's the that's the new thing. So that's where I say I fell into technology, and 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 I was building a technology and you know data science function and in the bank for the first time in terms of the regulator and 
for the love nor money, I couldn't get women. And I said, why? Um, you know, and I did all sorts of recruitment campaigns to bring people in, walked into universities looking at the pipeline and then did research. But statistically, the pipeline is still short. So I was like, well, I need to go right back to school to go and get these people. Um, but when you go to school, you're not going to have someone with a CV that's four pages long and not <laughs> seen experience. So, you know, our recruitment processes are there to make sure we get the best people. But it's not there to get necessarily the youngest people. And that's what I really needed in this particular area. So we looked right back down to the base and I thought, well, the only thing I needed was curiosity. And young people have bags of that. So we did away with all the recruitment processes and ran a competition. And the competition says, you've just got to tell me in five minutes how you think technology or data can help the banks work. You can go away and research it because Google's not going to tell you straight away. Um, and you can give me a video in TikTok, you can do a PowerPoint, you tell me however you want in five minutes how you think that's going to work. I also then got all the senior female leaders at the bank and said, you're coming with me out to the UK in terms of organisations, and you're going to showcase that the bank is a place you can work. Uh, and we ended up, I think, cross-sectional through the UK, right from Liverpool, Scotland, Wales, individuals applying, well over 140 applications. Um, we didn't name them, we didn't tag them. It was a women in innovation network, but men, I should say boys, young, young teenagers could also apply. We blind assessed them, and we ended up, lo and behold, with a 70-30 female to male oh, ratio. So um, and so what we'll offer them is an internship for, for two months, along with that, a year-long mentorship. One, hopefully they have a great experience and recognise the bank as a place to work. Two... These are people who wouldn't have necessarily thought technology is a career, but now having worked at the bank, having had an opportunity to then assess where they want to be in education, you're changing the dial. Um, and, it, and really, when it comes to innovation, I think curiosity is the biggest Absolutely. thing you need and everything else can be learned. Fascinating. So changing the people who are coming to the workplace. But Tim, when you think about AI, we've begun to talk about perhaps how it's going to change the jobs that we do. But how do you think... I want to get away from this idea of somebody going to take away jobs, but is it going to change the skills that are needed for your work? I mean, one thing that worries me is is when people say they build neural networks or they they they've they've learned how to do it and are going to apply it. And I I'm not against people trying and playing. I think that's really good, but they have to understand that there's a, a certain amount of knowledge that you need to do and be able to deploy them meaningfully. And I think there's going to be huge demand uh, where we move away from, as Peter rightly said, like doing AI for winning chess, right? But if we're going to do AI, I mean, I work in uh, air traffic control, so being, building AI agents to control airspace, we, you want to be pretty careful about how you do that doesn't matter if you lose chess. If you fly two planes at each other, it really does matter. And I think that's, that's the step we need. As people see the opportunities, adopt AI in the workplace, they need the skills, the training to be able to do it, question it. You know, is the outputs of this reliable? Are they safe? Have I, have I tested my methods properly? Um, and that comes with responsibility in part by universities, but as rightly said, at a lower level than that. Like we need AI, data science, statistics skills in particular, right down at the lower levels to support the, these needs coming, um, for sure. You flagged two things, actually, I wanted to ask you about. So you are doing this work on, on air traffic control, which is quite an interesting 
yeah. idea, and I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. But also this idea of uncertainty quantification, which kind of was sort of on the edges of what you were talking about there. What is it and why is it so important to how AI will work, how it's deployed? So at the moment, as the example with chess, does it really matter if we lose a game of chess? The answer is no, right? When you're, let's use the air traffic control example, um, you're making decisions about how you control and move planes around to make them efficient but make them safe. Um, but if you just assume you know exactly what the future path of an aircraft is, you, you could be drastically wrong. We have weather in this country in bags, right? And so actually that strongly affects where each individual plane could turn up. And so in your models that do the prediction and in your AI, if you're not robust to understanding these planes could be in a whole sweep of positions in a couple of minutes time, you won't guarantee to be safe. And I wouldn't want to be controlled by an algorithm that didn't capture uncertainty. And for me, and I think for Peter as well, he'll say more about it, I'm sure, is actually in these safety critical systems, you're not interested in the best prediction. You're actually interested in capturing the spread of predictions. And often it's the fringes of behavior where you worry about it, not what normally happens on every day. And that's a real challenge. Peter, how would you describe the importance of uncertainty quantification? So I, I think about this usually in terms of making decisions. So someone wants to make a decision and you have some computer models to help them make that decision. I don't think we're getting to the stage yet and possibly never where we let the computers make the difficult decisions about climate change, about the economy, about covid but we have a lot of information coming out of these models and we need to get that to a decision maker. And one of the things is the models are always going to be wrong. We shouldn't fool ourselves that however much computer power we put into things, however much data we collect, that our models are going to be right. They won't. They will be wrong. So I always think it's we want to make decisions so we get some uncertain data and we combine it with some uncertain models and what could possibly go wrong. <laughs> but the important thing is to get that uncertainty included in that decision making process. So you can go to the decision maker and say, this is what this model says, but it could be plus or minus 10 and this model over here could be plus or minus 8 to let the decision maker balance that because they say, ah, oh, well, that computer model didn't include something that I think is really important, mm. and therefore I prefer this one, that on paper looks not quite so good, because there are always things outside the model. So there are these non-mathematical things you have to take into account, and you have to give the flexibility. And uncertainty is not a bad thing in that sense. It's a good thing, because it does allow you to have wiggle room for the, for the decision. So a lot of my research is about uncertainty and how you propagate uncertainty through this really complicated thing. I mean, climate models take months on the biggest computers to run. So we work out clever ways to do that. And that enables us to give tools, decision support tools, to people to make decisions about thinking of the stuff that I work on. We work on climate, we're doing some stuff on COVID, we're doing some stuff on building fusion power stations. And it's basically the same maths. <laughs> but giving people tools to make sensible decisions so that the plasma in the fusion power station doesn't touch the side, yeah. that we have sensible ways to get to net zero, that we have predictions of COVID that says whether we need to take some extraordinary thing like a lockdown to stop it 
and, and those are all uncertain things. And as we learned from COVID, those are difficult messages to decipher. So, Nur, come on, we've been talking about work. What about, Claire, you talked about working in the games sector, which has actually been an enormous place where AI has kind of uh, uh, taken a big role. Just talk about that journey. I mean, and how do you go from making games to working in healthcare? This is a long journey. So I started <laughs> <laughs> computer science. My background is computer science engineering and then like got into AI. So, and I wanted to be in a space where it was easy to collect a lot of data without having to ask people for, like, without having to beg for data pretty much. <laughs> so with healthcare, it's very, very hard to collect data, mostly because it's either not there or you have to wait until a clinical trial. So when you, when you test a drug, for instance, on a human to get that data, or you have to go to the NHS and ask for data, and that's really very challenging. So I wanted a medium where it's relatively easy to just get data. And what that means is basically you can then experiment with a lot of different AI methods, because once you have the data, you pretty much solved the major chunk of the problem, right? Um, so I got into, into computer games, um, joined a um, center in Copenhagen, in um, IT University of Copenhagen, and did my PhD there and ended up getting um, funding for an assistant professorship. So I stayed there for about 10 years almost. Um, eventually, when I, when I got my assistant professorship, started thinking about like, whether I want to settle in an, in an academic career and stay there for like for the rest of my life, and um, whether there's like something else for it, like out there for me, and and I want to do something that is more applied and kind of touches the, the kind of everyone, everyone's life. And that was mostly because my mother was diagnosed with lung cancer, and that changes really how I think about life and the impact and, and all of that. Uh, so I ended up dropping my assistant professorship and going to the startup ecosystem, and wanted to do something in healthcare, and I had no clue about like <laughs> what that field is and was starting a startup in that field is. But I, I knew I wanted to kind of be in that area. So uh, back, I think a lot of people touched, touched on curiosity. And I think that's a very, very important for, for every human being to be, to be like always curious, no matter where you are in your, in your career path. Um, so I wasn't really so afraid of learning about drug discovery and chemistry and what it means to, to, to be in the pharmaceutical industry, to, to build a drug, to develop a drug and to, to get it into human. Um, so I learned a lot about that space and then ended up starting two startups in, in that. And was it obvious to you then that AI would be part of that transition? There's been a lot of innovation happening in AI, generally speaking, mm. like images and text. And so deep learning was, was already there and was already very much performing better than human in the kind of the standard image domain. So it was really shocking to kind of look at the pharmaceutical sector and see how much, how little of that translates into actual application in the pharmaceutical sector. Just generally speaking, pharma and biotech, innovation happens in that sector way slowly than it happens in other. I don't actually know why that is the reason why they kind of reject innovation until it's actually proven. And just describe what you're doing. You're kind of creating a, a library. I'll, I'll let you explain. So what we're basically building is um, AI tools that really can get us beyond the, the chemical space that we human have designed. So the idea is that if you are, to, for instance, to discover a novel drug for a specific disease, your starting point is usually chemical libraries that exist either in the public domain or within pharmaceutical companies. Those are usually in the hundreds of millions. Now there are like billions of them. People have start like started growing those libraries because they know there are more <coughs> and more chemicals that they should, should be in that funnel. But I think the largest library at the moment is about 
14 billion compounds. So that's a big, big library. But then if you, if you look at that number and you think about the chemical space of compounds, of, chemist, of chemical compounds that could become drug, that number is 10 to the power of 60, 60. That is as big as the number of atoms in the universe. So we're just looking at a very, very tiny fraction of the chemical space of, of drugs, that, of chemicals that could become drug. And the reason is that we've, we, we as a humanity, we've been looking at that chemical space for hundreds of years, and that's kind of the, the space where we're comfortable working with, that's the space that we've been thinking about. We have bias toward designing chemistry in that space, and we have difficulty reaching out to, to other spaces, and also connecting the dots, so what chemical could work on which disease. But AI doesn't really have that bias, so the idea is that we train AI on the existing libraries, on the existing chemical space, but then AI will have the potential to go beyond that chemical space and go into uncharted areas of the chemical space, and then open up that kind of astronomically large chemical space. But what's nice about AI is just, it is not just about opening that space, because then you end up with like the 10 to the power of 60, and you have no way of navigating that space. So you need you need a way also to navigate and make sure that you tap into areas that are relevant to specific disease and AI is also very good in kind of like just also making sure that we, we focus on subspaces within that huge space that are, that are relevant. So we're building two kind of classes of AI. One is the, what we call the generative AI, which allows us to open, to open up that space. And the other is basically the kind of standard predictive analytics that really help us kind of just do the funnel thing so we, we focus on the, the so, Can I ask, so is, is it like in the image recognition, like we're good at recognizing images, so you give images of cats and we can identify, is it a cat, is it not a cat? And you're basically asking the question, you don't care about that, you care about it the other way, and you're asking the question, generate me a picture of a cat. Exactly. Okay, yeah. that's cool. I think there's been like examples it's of... It's like the opposite, so you just, <laughs> like... And it's, so I guess the algorithm learns the features that we identify with a cat, which is it has ears and is fluffy, and, uh, exactly. and therefore it can generate possible pictures of cats. I was about to say, very trivially, glamorous AI, mind-boggling AI. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, picking up two of the themes that we've talked about, Peter, we've talked about uncertainty quantification, but looking at it then in healthcare, I mean, there's work you've done on, on diabetes that, that marries these two ideas. I'll, I'll let you explain. One of the things I do is to look at complex numerical models. Now, these are not AI models. Mm. These are models based on what are called partial differential equations. They're like physics-based models. What we do is look at propagating uncertainty through these models. So we have some models of diabetes. And at the moment, we have a number of models of diabetes. And we're trying to see how one model of diabetes relates to another model of diabetes using this uncertainty quantification idea. So is this model actually different to that model? Or are they really the same? And when you add this extra process in, did that make a difference or did that not make a difference? And so we're exploring models of diabetes, but we've also done endocrine models. We've done cardiac models as well. So looking at models of organs and chronic disease and trying to see, hopefully, if we can fit that model with some data, I can fit a model to Tim that is different to the model I fit to you and we can start to do personalized medicine based on first principle biology models, not just on your data, but how your data relates mm. to first principles biological systems and start to see why Tim is different to you. And if Tim's sick, why is Tim sick and you're not? 
and hopefully we can actually tailor treatment. Now that's starting to happen in heart modelling. Hearts are easier to model than livers, because they're just pumps. Hearts are just, they're complicated <laughs> pumps, but they're pumps. So if you're going to put a stent, a little balloon, into someone's artery to make it open up, there are people who do that using AI-type techniques. They, they model the flow, and they model how big that stent has to be. You don't want it bigger than it has to be, and they can model the keyhole surgery to go in and do that. Yeah. So you get much less invasive procedures to do a heart operation. Now, livers don't work like that. <laughs> livers are much more complicated, but that's the sort of thing we're heading towards. The future of AI, we're allowed to keep talking about it. Uh, Shultana, now you're in reg tech, which I always want to read as reg tech, which makes me think of Elton John at a piano. <laughs> <laughs> Might be more fun. <laughs> you, what, what is reg tech? No, I think you're it's, absolutely it's right. Not I mean, look, <laughs> it became really cool to put a prefix in front of tech, I think, probably about seven <laughs> years ago. And I'm sure you've got some biotech and meditech and all sorts of tech. So essentially, I think that's where it's kind of spun out from, which is, you know, it's a prefix in front of tech. So what's the prefix? Well, fintech is probably more widely, you know, synonymous, which is, you know, financial technologies. You know, how is financial services changing with technology? Well, regtech is just a subset of that, because wherever you've got financial services, you can be sure the regulators aren't far behind. Um, and I can say that because I think the, the firms themselves said they'd rather be regulated than not. Um, so we're allowed. So regtech really is applying that technology to regulation. And in my world, that's financial services. But, but is it risky then? I mean, are you, is, it, is it a sort of a wild west of regulation? It's an interesting one. So as Peter was talking, I was thinking, this is all great, but is there a risk of overfitting or underfitting? The day? And I thought, let me, let, me, <laughs> let me hold back because I'm going to go off on one. Um, but I think there's a risk and an opportunity. To, to Tim's earlier point, you know, this, a lot of this stuff is unexplainable. And how comfortable are we with the unexplainable? Um, even with the uncertainty quantification, so at the moment, you know, I, I look at the example of driverless cars in, in the US, in a state, I think, you know, a driverless car killed one person, that was the end of driverless cars. Um, in that same state, I think they had like over, you know, 1,700 deaths in the same year by humans. That's absolutely flying because we can blame you. Um, and, and it's that kind of, kind of risk and opportunities. I think the opportunity is there, but I think we've got to get comfortable with it. Um, and I mentioned before around the challenger models, how, we've got to find ways of getting comfortable with it. We've got to change the way we, you know, govern our models. You know, all of this AI stuff is in a model. And those models, you know, traditionally are static. You know, we are going to get the model to do X, Y, and Z. And it's going to do that every single time. And that's where traditional logistical regression and all that sort of stuff has come out of. Uh, economists are very comfortable with that. Um, they're not so comfortable with it changing its mind. Why is this model changing its mind? Um, and so they, you know, they, they, they stare back from that. So we've got to find ways of making this AA stuff less black box, less unexplainable, more explainable. Um, and then we've got to prove that it's, you know, 100% accurate in some cases, you know. We talk about the criticality of output, you know. In the healthcare, if you're using it for cancer diagnosis, you can't get it wrong. You know, the impact is huge. If you're asking me, do I like red dot martins or blue? Okay, you can get it wrong. You know, it, it's about that. And I think in, in, in our world, the risk for us is, you know, exactly that overfitting our models, underfitting our models, using this and then getting it wrong. There's no blame aspect. You know, where, where does the risk lie? At the moment, you know, we rely on the firms to tell us information. We collect that and we use it. We go into, you know, the bank has work where it's looking about 
looking into actual data warehouses of banks and saying, we'll take what we need, but we're also transitioning the risk because now we as regulators would have access to everything. So where do you start? So I think there's a journey to be had here, you know, making the best of what you have um, before you go on to kind of risking and increasing that risk model, basically. No, I just want to bring you in, and I'm conscious I want to have enough time for questions. So I'm going to jump about for a moment and get one or two quick points from all of you. But no, on this question of decision-making, um, Peter talked about how uncertainty quantification can perhaps help when you're making big decisions about climate change or, or COVID or whatever. But do you think AI empowers decision-making? Absolutely. I think it's because it learns, I think the point is AI can learn from a lot of data and the human cannot, cannot possibly digest sometimes that amount of data. And I see, I see that a lot in biology, biology and chemistry. In biology, there's like the number of papers that's been published by minute. It's, it's just, we, we can't read that many papers. We can't connect the dots in a way where, where AI can, can actually help. And there's been a lot of instances, back kind of talking about examples, there's been a lot of, a lot of instances where AI has been able to link different diseases that are not, for us, obvious that are linked, for instance, and then just suggest some medications from one disease that could potentially work for another. People have tried that for, for COVID, for instance, um, in the early days before the vaccine was, was discovered. So that like it, it's just about really looking into areas where we people just cannot do and then project that data in front of us in a way where we are able to understand it and then be able to make better decisions by, by kind of just digesting that data, project it in a way that is really meaningful for us human, and then perhaps making us better, make better decisions, basically. And Tim, we've talked about really big ideas, you know, whether it's kind of protein folding, personalized medicine, uh, whatever. But actually, when you live in Exeter, does AI change the way you live and work in a place like this? Like regionally, it's really important for us because we don't have to be in big cities. As COVID has shown, my group, there's about 20 of us. We happily work remotely. We missed having coffee with each other, but you can still work. And I think actually as an opportunity for the Southwest Exeter in general, AI could be done here uh, at computers here quite easily on an international scale, which regionally is completely different. Like, you know, the old model where you could only be in London is being dissolved. Uh, and, um, you know, something very important regionally for us uh, and here in Exeter. And, and uh, uh, Shultana was talking about the, the internship programme at the Bank of England that saw so many more young women uh, engage with the bank and with, with future technology. I mean, how do you feel about that, about getting women involved? Because we haven't really talked about the biases that are sometimes implicit in AI, depending on the data you put in. What's your take on that? How do you persuade women that this is an important field and one that, that they absolutely must make a contrib contribution to? It's, it's actually a very, it's a very challenging area and it's a very interesting topic. Um, I think we, we need to start back to kind of school, early, early age. My, my daughter is eight and I always try to make sure that she, she understands what it means to be a boss, to be a manager, to be <laughs> in science and, and to do all the kind of coding skills, yeah. right? It's, it's actually kind of sometimes annoying to see that kind of bias happens at a very, very early age. So she's, she's very aware of the difference. She's very aware of what she can do and what she's supposed to do and what she, she, she's not supposed to do. So I think it, it has to start early on. But I think for the people like undergrad or grad, 
I, I usually recommend joining a startup like early on just because it gives them a wide range of experience and it is the expectations are different and I think for, for us as, a, as an organization, we have to be aware of how male versus like females mm. perceive a job description, for instance. And there are like a lot of things that we can change within the job description that makes it more female friendly. It, it, it's just about like research, study, see how, how female react to different things and make sure that's all included within the strategy, within the, the hiring and, and the, the pipeline. And we usually reach out to them, like cold email them and like please apply <laughs> that, that, yeah it's, it's, it's challenging it's, it's hard and um, somebody has to do something about it I think great thing right I'm going to open the floor to all of you uh, time for some questions because I've, I've had a monopoly I, right, I'm going to go from the back and work forwards all right so I'm going to try and summarize so first question at what point can AI kind of almost take over from human decision making uh, what can we do to ensure that more women are encouraged or feel it's possible to come in to the world of tech and then universal basic income or the idea of a basic income will that become more important as we perhaps become more technologically driven is that is that a fair summary fantastic i'm going to go from this side tim if you go okay so i'll answer the first one because that was about air traffic control um interesting question uh because one thing i would say is AI is doing a lot for you already. And so you're already living with AI. Like if you think a plane and a pilot actually flies a plane, you'd be surprised how, how automated it is. Um, so I think the tipping point will be if I can offer you an algorithm that controls airspace, which is 50% more efficient in how it delivers planes and has an environmental impact. And then you weigh that up against, are you happy that we've been provably safe, safer by an order than a human controller, are you morally happy with that? And I, and I think lots of people, you know, they have a balance. It's proved to be safer and it's 50% 50 50 more efficient. I mean, I would do it. I would say the real challenge is we can't just turn off humans and turn on AI. And so the challenge that we've got in the programme that we've got is you've got this interplay between the two. And now the problem is as AI starts to do more, we want air traffic controllers observing it but actually doing the mundane tasks gives cognitive awareness to the human. And now what happens is most of the low cognitive tasks can be done by AI, and then suddenly you're parachuting a human into an awful situation. Not an awful situation, but something that's in the boundaries. And then that makes it almost way difficult for the human, even though the AI is doing the grunt of the work. And that tipping point is, 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 is interesting. Yeah, I'll just follow up on that. I think for me personally, seeing a lot of AI methods now being applied to a lot of like, say, radiology, for instance, or pathology, where it can learn from a lot of data and then be able to surpass human level of accuracy. For me, if I have to choose between a doctor that is a human, like a pathologist or a radiologist or AI, I would choose the diagnosis by AI just because I know that it's seen thousands and thousands of cases and it's been able to differentiate my case versus all of those. While human cannot be possible, simply can't do that, right? But then there are a lot of other situations where I still kind of like to interact with humans, especially on kind of more like the communication, like emotional aspect to it. So that like cases where AI perhaps is preferred and cases where it's not. And on that specific point, I know and you the, talked about it a little bit already, but getting women into tech. Oh, it's, it's really challenging. I mean, I think it's, it has also a lot to do with 
role models and making sure that they see those role models and other, other women are, are there, they're, they're working and they, they've been able to reach certain living in the hierarchy of, of different organisations. Shantana, the last thought to you, I'm going to go one more quick round, but last thought to you on the idea of basic income. That's a tough one, it's, it's beyond my scope, but what, what I will say is that if you link it back to the opening up of the workplace, right, the pandemic, as bad as it was, for, for gender parity and inviting women into the workplace created huge flexibility. And I think, you know, there's, there's the academic sphere of we're not getting people in. But let's not forget, computer science doesn't require... I, I learned to code in R, Python, long, long ago, C++. I'm not old enough to do Cobalt, just to... But I didn't learn any of that in any of the formal education I had. I went to Code Academy and I went to YouTube and I went to lots of different other paths and you learn and you applied. So my knowledge was applied knowledge and therefore it was wanted knowledge um, as well. So it was easier for me to take a path in. So I think for me, I think when it comes to bringing women and younger girls on board, it's looking beyond the box, which is this is how we recruit, this is what we get and thinking, why don't I bring people with the right mindset and train them? And briefly, are you going to address the basic income question? Am I going to address the basic income question? <laughs> From a personal perspective, I think that there are huge variables that are more geopolitical that will affect that question. That's not the bank's answer, it's my answer, which is, if you look at smaller nations, that are, you know, there are huge disparities in, in large capitalist organisations and countries in pay, in what we do. You take it to the Nordic countries, you've got smaller populations, higher incomes, less disparity, that, that sense of basic income is there already. So it's not new. Is it going to be digitally enabled? Well, that goes right back to, you know, I can go to Bangladesh, you know, where my heritage comes from and say, the garment industry, which allowed women into the workplace, which huge parts, are now being subsumed by digital technology that is now taking away women's jobs. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're de-leveling that income. So I, I just think it's a massive complex question that is hugely linked to the way economies operate, what they do. And I think, to be honest, I think digital is, you know, it has both risks and opportunities in that space. One last quick question, because <laughs> you're all here. Uh, right, one from you, and then I'm going to ask one last quick question to the panel. Go on, lady there. Well, we have capable decision makers. Very briefly from each of you, what's the one big change that you think may come out of AI in the next 10 years? And we've talked about a few of them already. It's capable decision making. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, personally, I hope that AI doesn't remove all decision making. And so therefore, um, I think a role of AI, as Peter alluded to, is about offering up uh, information and uncertainty around possible decisions. So the, the plethora of knowledge that you can is out there which you can consume but then offering it in an unbiased even way for for people still to make human decisions and i i hope that's never something that's taken away from us um what was and, and what, one big change um yeah so ai controlling safety critical systems that are really important for us yeah no uh for me it's ai augmenting everything that we do so we can do our job better yeah, especially like healthcare, I think like there's a big shift in like using AI in every aspect of healthcare at the moment. And I think you'd argue that actually it's going to enhance our ability to make decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Um, in response to the question, it, things that spun to my mind was that you, you're talking about the loss of corporate knowledge, right? You're, the building of the brain and the loss of the decision making is something I think about. In fact, we had, the, we had this debate amongst my data science functions, which is, is Google making us dumb? About 25 times a day I recognise that I've pressed something in Google um, and I trust it um, until you realise Wikipedia is not an academic reference. <laughs> but it's that exact concept and that's why we started debating it, which is, is it making us dumb or is it changing what we spend our time on? And does that actually match the fact that how we consume and subsume everything in our life is changing and therefore we as humans are changing our you know, skill and knowledge base to match how we're consuming things. So I think that's where we reached in our debate, but it's a very, very topical question, and I agree it needs far more research. In terms of what I think, this is a personal opinion, I've got to say this because I'm a regulator, <laughs> so don't, this is not the bank's view. I think there's going to be a, you know, we see it already, uh, probably all of you students especially have got Monzo's, Revolut's rather than your traditional banks, and I think there's an AI-driven destabilisation of our banking environment somewhere along the line. Peter. If you look in, in history and when things change, so the introduction of calculators stopped us doing mental arithmetic. Yeah. And, and that's the same thing I think is going to happen with a lot of AI things, that we possibly won't know how to do linear regressions because machines will do linear regressions for us. But are we worse for not knowing how to do linear? I think those are tools, and we will learn to use tools better. And the thing I hope AI will morph more into are digital spanners rather than digital magic. And too much at the moment, I view proposals where people say, we will solve this by machine learning. And I think, well, that's just, that's just saying, I will do some maths. It doesn't tell me what you're going to do. By changing it from magic to a kind of spanner, I want a certain type of AI algorithm or a certain type of machine learning algorithm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to know how that works inside. Some people have to know how it works inside because they have to mend the spanners, but the analogy is falling apart now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like that, it's like, a new spanner. You, know, you don't know how your phone works, but you can use it, and some people have to know how phone works, and I think AI might transmute into something like that, mm. that you will have a thing, probably on a phone, that will enable anyone to do AI in an appropriate way, and we will teach people how to do it in an appropriate way. What a fantastic discussion. Thank you all so much. Thank you to Peter Chaloner, Zoltana Begum, Noor Shaker, and Tim Dodwell. Thanks to all of you for coming. I'm Ritala Sharp. This event was produced by the Institute for Artificial Intelligence and Data Science at the University of Exeter with Agile Rabbit. And Agile Rabbit runs loads of events, regular events, and they're fantastic. So please do come along. Thanks very much. Good evening.